Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this edition of the Feeling Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, hopefully, not turning into a colorful furry bear, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. I'm definitely not a furry. Never gonna be a furry. I wouldn't mind turning into a gummy bear or a care bear, but not a furry bear. Yeah, I would rather, if you were going to pick between those two, please care bear because gummy bears get sticky and soft. And, and You know, summertime in Seattle, I know, would just not be a good thing for you. Care so bear stare. <laughs> we could go with that. We could go with that. Well, this week we stayed home and enjoyed the latest in the behemoth that is Disney Plus. Disney Pixar is turning red. I honestly, Aaron, did not know much about this film going in, so it was a nice little movie experience to basically go in blind. And, uh, you know, I've got nothing else to add to that, so let's get into it. This is your official spoiler warning. We'll be talking in depth about most of the movie as much as we can, so make sure that you check this out, Disney Plus, and come back and enjoy the conversation with us. One thing to note, in case you are tapping out here early on, is that the film is on Disney Plus for, like, I don't want to say for free, but it, it it's not premium access. So you don't have to pay extra to get it like you have some of their previous releases that have hit Disney Plus and not been in the theater. This one doesn't cost you 30 bucks. You can just go watch it right now. Part of the mainstay is what we're going to call the the lowly subscribers that we are in the millions. <laughs> Well, before we get into the meat of the story, Aaron, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that stuck out to me watching this, and that's the use of time, specifically the intentionality of setting this movie in 2002. I, I was thinking about animated films, and particularly ones from Pixar, thinking back to the ones that, that, that come to mind, Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., um, just all these different ones, Inside Out. These movies don't really have a time period they they really are timeless you can watch them not necessarily having uh common music that is being released at that point like during the day you know as a contrast you've got like shrek shrek is very much a dated movie because of the use of its references that it makes the soundtrack it's all it's a great movie to watch but you clearly know that it's been made in a particular period of time this movie takes place let me get my yeah, 20 years ago, <laughs> 20 years. And, and I thought that was really interesting for, in particular, an animated movie to do this. Now, we have period pieces. We have movies that take place in the 80s. Wonder Woman 1984 is an example. And we understand why that happens. We understand that there are specific reasons for it. But this was the first time that I ever remember an animated feature deliberately taking a time period and calling it out. And I was going to ask, you know, how does, I'm going to put the word dating in quotes, uh, this movie with its references to like flip phones and boy bands, and does that enhance or diminish your connection to it or in general as an audience? I think because of this story, yes, it did. I mean, I can't say every single film ever, you know, with that time period setting would but for me, I don't know if you watched the post-credits scene. I'm going to jump all the way to the end of the movie. Did you look, did you watch the credits, Patrick? Yes, I did. Okay. So I didn't the first time I screened this, 
I did the second time and I did primarily not because I wanted to see if anything was there, but because I was jamming out to Four Town and I was literally just enjoying getting to hear all of the soundtrack over the course of the credits. And we get to the very end and there's a quick shot of the dad and he's like dancing, right? I think he's down in the basement cleaning or something. He's like, you're not on my mind, my mind, my mind. And I'm just like, that's me. That's me right now. So where I relate to this movie, because it's set in this time period that I wasn't a 13-year-old, I certainly wasn't a 13-year-old girl, I wasn't a necessarily in this type of role as a father yet. I was a father, technically. Like, no, I wasn't, 2003. So not quite a father. But I was obsessed with boy bands, and I always have been. I had Nickelodeon, no, I had New Kids on the Block posters on my wall growing up in the late 90s, and I was all about that NSYNC and Backstreet Boys life, which Four Town is really strongly modeled after, and so getting to see this era, it was like a nostalgic thing for me, and it feels so weird, Patrick, that nostalgia is 2002. Like, to say that, it's just, it, it's really... It makes me feel old is what it does. But yeah, for and for me, I think setting this in that time period, even though I wasn't that age in that time period, I was still a young adult and I was still kind of acting in a way that I could understand very clearly what the obsessions were. And so I felt very connected to the time period here in a way that I'm not usually, and when you reference those other Pixar movies, I think that's one of the main things that's so different about this is, this is not a fantastical movie. Okay, and I people are probably going, excuse me, there's a gigantic red panda that she turns into, right? Yes, I know, but like, it's not a fantastical world. It's It's very lived in, it's very realistic and normal, with the small exception of the fact that she turns into a red panda. And of course, that's a metaphor in this film. It's not you're you're not in an imagination kind of setting like soul or inside out. And so I really thought that that was a big strength of this particular story. And the story that they wanted to tell, I think it hit harder because it was so grounded in this mostly recent reality that so many people could relate to. Both, you're trying to tell a story about adolescence and about puberty in a way that Pixar has never really attempted to do something that Disney in general is, has never done in this direct kind of manner. And so it's, but you're really picking a period where parents who are our age, Patrick, can relate to their time as a kid in this particular setting and also maybe having kids going through this experience, I think it's just perfect as far as the time period goes. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that this really speaks to the notion of writing what you know and creating what you know, telling stories of what you know. Good point. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the director was 13 in 2002. I looked up her age and she's very young, born in 1989. So there's a there's a there's a reason why and it's not a bad thing to have this love letter to boy bands love letter to your town of toronto i think that 
when you watch something like this, it wasn't jarring by any means. It just felt very, it was interesting to me because as you mentioned, I mean, take a look at some of the stable of, of Pixar movies, Toy Story, A Bug's Life, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Cars, Ratatouille, Wally. All of these have as their protagonist, an inanimate object or a creation that is not human. Now, there might be some human traits to them. They might interact with humans. But the first movie that I think we actually got, I could be wrong, but the one that I remember was Coco. Coco centered around a human family, specifically in a cultural world that was not necessarily American. So what's happening in Finding Red is not something that's necessarily not been done before. But when you look at Coco, it wasn't set in a particular year. So there was a next, an added element here that I thought was really interesting. Could you have set this in 2020? Sure. These girls could be obsessed with something else. But the fact is, boy bands specifically were huge. They were absolutely huge back in the early 2000s. I was with you. I was an NSYNC guy. I followed Justin T when he was a wee lad doing his thing with these four other guys and then Backstreet Boys and having these guys on like Total Request Live with Carson Daly. It was just phenomenal. And you had what I thought was really well depicted, boys and girls like falling out because these people, these these act, these characters, these musicians were just amazing doing, I'm going to use a pun, larger than life performances to be able to put on for these guys. So when you think about the crux of the main character and her obsession, her friend's obsession with a boy band, I have a hard time in 2022 thinking, hmm, I'm not 13 and I'm not a girl, but I'm trying to think about what could you put in place of a boy band that young teenage girls could be obsessed over in 2022? And it's really difficult to find, to know. Social media? No. Uh, TikTok? Maybe. But I think the fact is 2002, that time period had enough to propel these four characters and our main character, Mei Mei, forward to give her a reason to just kind of obsess and to really, you know, the, the end result is she turns into this giant panda because she can't control her emotions. And so it made sense to think, all right, well, if we know the backstory that this director knows that time period, what better thing to get somebody's emotions than a boy band? I mean, I think there was a point near the end where we see four town performing and these you know these characters are crying even one of the boys is crying this happened i mean it, it got that overwhelming and so i don't know that you could really put that in today's time period and attach it to something as monumental as boy bands and granted boy bands are a fad they're still around to an extent but they were never as big as they were back then and so i think it made a great crux for allowing the point of her story to play out yeah, and you needed something to be the draw that would bring out this rebellious streak. And that was a thing that happened. And that is a very realistic way to use that. And that came out in a quote that I saw from the director, actually. She said, we needed our character to be obsessed with something that her mom would not approve of. Boy bands were the first step into the world of boys for a lot of girls at that age. The guys were all super pretty polished, soft, and loving, speaking to what you're talking about, and they had this way of bringing girls and their besties together. 
Plus, I just thought it'd be really cool to create an animated boy band. So, <laughs> co-signed that. That was great. I love right that. after animated dumplings, we moved on to boy bands. So, I think that that you know speaks to the perfect storm of if you're gonna set it in a real. I mean, like you said, you're writing what you know, and for her. As a 13-year-old girl in this time, that would have been the thing that everybody would have talked about, everybody would have been obsessed with, and probably drove quite a few parents who were on the more conservative side or more controlling side nuts. So that being said, I mean, we have a specific time period, a specific place, Toronto, and a specific cultural background. So you have Asian Americans living in, is it? Is it Chinatown? Did they refer to it as Chinatown in Toronto? I don't know if they'd be Asian Americans, Asian North Americans, Asian Canadians. True, right? The Asian Canadians. So yeah, again, my or Canadian Asian my ethnocentrism. I don't know. Syndrome. Canadian Chinese, I believe, okay. is what they are. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like I don't. Yeah. I really. Don't, I mean, I think. Yeah, Chinese Canadian is the way that go. they put it. Okay, great. So, and then I guess they're living in Chinatown in Toronto, a uh, very real place. When you when you see that. One of the things that I was kind of wondering is, does that limit an audience's appreciation, entertainment value of this? In other words, does, like a lot of Pixar movies, does this movie have a universal appeal in not only its story, but also in its emotional attachment to the characters and to the story that's going on? So did you listen to my FF Plus episode? On this I didn't, and I, I make it a point not to listen to it before Good. I actually get into the uh, the story. So I went on a pretty lengthy rant about this in the FF Plus episode. So for those that happen to listen to that, sorry, I'm going to repeat some of the things I ranted about here. But when it comes to this, it really does bother me. And I wanted to make that clear that I do have a very distinct position on this one. And especially after seeing it a second time through, Patrick, so for like you, just a quick, quick background. Like I came to this, I didn't know much about it either. I actually hadn't seen a trailer. I hadn't looked up the plot, didn't know the plot. I knew girl turns into big panda, right? And panda still not as cool as Shifu for the record, but girl turns into big panda is all I knew going in. I really enjoyed it the first time, picked up on the big overarching metaphor. I watched it again this morning before the podcast and it hit me a lot harder and a lot better even than the first time. I really could see the craft in this film in every frame and all the way through in the way that the dialogue worked and the script and how it was just so completely thorough in its depiction of this experience, this one specific type of experience. So I was really impressed with it then. And it just makes me even more angry now because you know, a lot of the criticism that has been online about the movie being kind of set in this one area or this one time and this one place and, and Chinese Canadians and everybody can't relate to that. They, some of it came from this one guy online. I'm not even going to name his name, but he had said something like the movie isn't made for me and therefore it's kind of a failure because it's not made for everybody and Pixar movies should be made for everybody. I'm going to tell you right now, the moment that you say, X should be X, you're wrong, period. Because not, you can't dictate what should and shouldn't be as a viewer and as a consumer. So you get to enjoy what people decide, what artists and creative types get to make. I'm talking to Patrick, who has directed and created quite a few short films and competitions and such. 
I don't get to tell Patrick what to make and be upset when he doesn't do it the way that I want him to do it. I can like it and I can not like it, but I can't be mad that he did it, did it the way that he wanted. You know what I mean? Saying so it, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And I think fairly so specifically because you get this very different aspect of a culture and it's not just honing in on the Chinese aspect. And I think we've grown accustomed as society to kind of, we live in this place where it's all about representation matters and equity and equality. And we want to see these things played out on screen. And usually that manifests itself in a pretty simplistic ways. I think Patrick, usually we'll see, Oh, we got black people in this movie that we usually haven't seen black people in a Western. So cool. Like it's very surface level sometimes. And this kind of goes beyond that because it's not just about giving us a movie about a Chinese family with a Chinese, you know, very steeped in their Chinese culture, the way that they run a temple and they care about their ancestors and all of these things. But in addition to that, you've got this representation of a time period where kids just don't talk about it, right? Like we just don't have conversations about that. When her mom starts talking about her getting her period, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was, as a man viewer, even with my own daughter, like I was like kind of like sat back in my seat. Like, am I really hearing this right now? Is this happening? It kind of took me by surprise because we're just not accustomed to that level of blunt honesty about what kids are going through at that age. And I thought that for me, it's a positive and I think it does have wide appeal. I think that those who do not feel it is made for them or are turned off by it because maybe they don't have kids or maybe they weren't a female who went through with this. Cause I think those are the only two kind of groups that really wouldn't relate. I think that you can watch this and whether you enjoyed it or not, you could, you should be able to recognize the importance of a movie like this for the groups that are being represented and appreciate that. And that's where I would push back on anyone who says that it doesn't have quote appeal for all audiences. I guess you're, I guess technically they're correct, Patrick, that it doesn't necessarily have quote appeal for all audiences in a directly relatable way, but I don't know why you couldn't just watch this and enjoy it for the fantastical part of the story of somebody dealing with being turned into a red panda and going on this rebellious journey from their parents and back and forth. I mean, it even ends with a big kind of blockbustery set piece, like a superhero movie. So I feel like it's pretty fun and well-paced and energetic and exciting and funny, whether you connect to the metaphors of it or not. Yeah, I think when when you look at all that, I would because I, I read that same article I'd, I'd known about what you what you had referred to earlier with regard to the the critical review that you alluded to. Having not gotten a chance to read it because I think it was taken down, one of the things that I thought through as I was watching this movie is that it's unfair. I would agree with you. It's unfair to say that because the movie doesn't appeal to me or because it's not quote universal, it 
could be considered a failure. I don't think that's that way at all. Because every movie that is created by a director is going to appeal to someone if, at the very least, it's going to be the director. <laughs> I would love to say that everything that I create, whether it's movies or a script or a design project, that I absolutely love everything. But there is a passion and there is a level of ownership and pride that goes into the things that you create, especially when you have a knowledge and an intimacy with that. I would say that Turning Red is a very specific story that can touch on a universal idea here and there. And there are a number of different themes that you could absolutely connect to, even if you're not a 13-year-old girl living in Toronto who's Asian, in that order. <laughs> not an Asian girl who's 13 living in Toronto. Whatever you want to prioritize in terms of that kind of variety or intersection, whatever we're going to call it, how we're going to categorize this. The fact is, there are movies out there that I absolutely adore, and their protagonist is a female. Their protagonist is like hearts beat loud. What in the world? <laughs> absolutely adore that movie, and it's spearheaded by a fantastic performance from a a female lead and what she's experiencing with going off to college soon and having to leave her dad. Do I connect with her? Not completely. I connect more with her dad, but I enjoy the story as a whole because there's a lot to it that gets me invested holistically. So when I watched Turning Red, the truth is I didn't enjoy it as much as I have enjoyed other movies. It's not one that I am compelled to say, I want to watch this again. But there's enough about it, Aaron, that I think makes it worth watching and talking about, not just on a podcast, but in general. And we have to, as people, become more decent when it comes to people who create. I would rather, in all honesty, watch a story like this that I don't quite connect to, be successful technically and as a whole, which I think this movie does, than watch someone try to appeal to me and make something that's really terrible. Like, that's just, that's not okay. Make what you make with your knowledge and background that you're comfortable with that you feel like hey this is a story worth telling it's going to appeal to someone because it's honest the honesty of this story is what i think gives it its appeal and it doesn't have to be a blockbuster win like a win for me if i were to create something like this is just to feel like i got the message out of the story i wanted to tell and i think her name is pronounced domi shi i think that's her name okay I think she did that. She's proud of what she put out there. You're going to get people that don't agree, that don't think it's a great movie. But that's a subjective vantage point. I don't think there was anything technically wrong with this. I thought it was a beautifully shot movie. I thought the set pieces were fun. I thought the dialogue was great. I thought the character development. If you want to get into technicals, I think it was just a really solid Pixar. Yeah, I just think you're spot on. And I think that it has definitely been a joy for me to read reviews and see reaction to the film from other people, women specifically, who have lived some of May's experiences and been able to feel seen more so than just me, like in the post-credits moment. And so there's something special about when a big studio with a far reach 
and that is known for making movies that are universally appealing to everyone does something a little bit more specific like this. And so I kind of, I can understand the surprise from folks. I can understand being like, oh, wow, hold on. I, this is not what I normally thought a Pixar movie was going to be. I just don't understand the criticism of it. I understand the surprise, but then that's when you should take a look at why those things occur and what it means in the broader spectrum and be able to appreciate it for its strengths and stuff. You know, it's not a movie that I'm going to rewatch a hundred times over and over and over. I will listen to the soundtrack. I really enjoy the songs quite a bit. They're stuck in my head, man. I was like texting you lyrics earlier today, but I don't think just watching through it from start to finish is something that I would, you know, prioritize over other animated films in any capacity. There's so many others I would rather watch. But I definitely was like, oh my gosh, my daughter, you got to see this. You know, my ex-wife, I told all the women I know, like, hey, you got to see this because I think you're going to relate to this in a way that that I can't. And maybe it would be a rewatchable for those people. And so good on them. Of course, then that also begs up the question of then you got to deal with the fact that, well, why did Pixar put this one? Why does this movie get dele- you know, relegated to streaming only? And this one doesn't get a theatrical release like the rest of Pixar's film. And what is Disney doing? And all this stuff. Uh, you know, they're going to get criticized left and right, regardless of what they do, it feels like, because no one can be happy. <laughs> you know, they're trying to run a business nope. and they're trying to put things that people want to see on their platform for free to justify the cost. And I hope people understand that. Like Disney Plus is something that you may have gotten it a year for free with some sign up deal back when it started through Verizon or Apple or whoever, like we got. But the reality is it's a pay per month service. And you have to put content on it to continue to justify its existence. And you can't just put $30 premium content on it. You have to drop something new that people care about every once in a while. And you got to drop it into different demographics too. You can't just drop the Mandalorian and expect families with preteens, girls to want to watch that, right? So that's what they're trying to do. That's what Disney Plus is making these moves for. That's why some go theatrical and that's why some go straight to Disney Plus and Mm-hmm. Just understand that. Thank you well, for my yeah, TED talk. I, that's your PSA for, yeah. for the, the you audience go. there. Well, and Disney is a is a business. It's a brand, and it's got a lot of content. And the fact is, it has to feed each level of that brand. I think it also, Aaron, speaks to the fact that theaters don't have the firepower that they did two or three years ago. And maybe that was a trend that was happening before we hit the pandemic, but it was exacerbated by that. And I think by, you could almost take it the opposite way and say, hey, why are you releasing it in the theaters when you can easily just put it on streaming? Like West Side Story, why would you do that? Why would you not put it on streaming where your millions of fans, millions of subscribers can check it out already? Yes, I know that there's a financial <laughs> uh, profit to be gained. There's a financial gain from that. But I'm thinking more in the opposite direction of like, look, I think it's a, an exception to the rule when you release something in theaters. You know, last year, what was it? DC released all their stuff streaming and in the theaters, and now they're just doing theaters only. You're, you're dealing with a medium that has been shaken. And we don't know what it's going to look like in two or three years. I was talking to uh, someone recently about the fact that, you know, what are theaters going to be? Are they going to be outlets for specific studios? Is Regal going to get bought out for by WB 
and now all WB movies are going to be strictly through the Regal folks. I don't think that will happen because Regal's not in every town and neither is uh, AMC. But we have to start thinking realistically about that and how you have these juggernauts of streaming services that have the capacity and have the motive potentially buy these things and make them their own. So we're in a weird time period right now. And I think <laughs> if I'm going to be the parent. I'm like, we should just be grateful for what we get. Okay. We should just be. So if it comes on streaming or hits a theater, if you want to go see it, go see it, get yourself a Regal app, get yourself an AMC pass, and then, you know, pay your $20 a month and go see that and something else to pay for it. All right. There's my soapbox. And now we can put both of those away and get into what I believe are the things that made us really enjoy this movie. And I'll go ahead and just kick it off by saying, I love the idea of struggling to find your own voice apart from your parents. And I wanted to start because Aaron, you are connected to this. You and three other individuals that we called the tap brotherhood in high school. We had this amazing crew of folks, these guys that I would hang out with. I related to Maymay and her crew of girls because validation of who we were to an extent came from those four other individuals. We'd hang out, we'd play bond. I would suck at it like I always do. And we would have conversations that were about as awkward as getting your period on the male side of things. So there would be things that we would talk about that you wouldn't be comfortable talking about with your parents, you know, who you're going to date. Um, are you going to kiss this girl? I mean, relationships mainly, but having this crew of people, there was this level of trust and level of, you know, looking back on it, there was a level of intimacy that I think we all understood and we all appreciated without really saying it. And we found ways to sort of bypass that. I won't call it effeminate. I'll call it like the sensitivity by sort of filling it up with other things like Genesis, you know, playing Mortal Kombat or playing handbells for goodness sakes. Wow. That was just crazy. But the fact is we had that with each other. And I specifically recall when I was talking to my dad, we were all involved in our, in our local church. And there was a point where my dad came up to me and said, Hey, you know what? I think you finally arrived because when people come up to me, they don't say, um, they don't, they don't say, Oh, Hey, Hey John. They say, Oh yeah, you're Patrick's dad, as opposed to, Oh yeah, you're, you're John's son when the tides turn like that, you feel like, oh, wow, I've actually found identity or I've actually found a connection that goes beyond family. And the fact is you have to have that. You have to have friends in your life that are going to be an outlet for you to do your own little linguistic code switching that you can talk to them in a different way and about different things than you can your parents. I think that's completely appropriate. It doesn't mean that you're dissing your parents, but it means that you're just growing up. Your testosterone is getting a lot heavier and you don't want to hang out with mom and dad and you want to be dropped off like two blocks from the party, that's all normal. And it's what makes it fun to watch that play out on screen. So watching May and her crew go through that, May specifically with her mom, I completely relate to that. I never hated my parents, but I clearly remember this kind of arc of like they were my people, then they were an embarrassment, and then they were my people again. As I got back into college and realized, you know what? <laughs> I can have both. I can have close friends and I can have my parents because they're good people and they love me. And they actually are pretty smart when it comes to the things that I didn't think they were. So 
seeing this played out on screen, I think was a really, really um, connective, relevant thing that that I absolutely loved. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that the relationships are so good and the way that they're depicted here, they're so realistic. It's so natural. The way that May's mom is, there's no way to read it other than it's just like most parents, even if they don't necessarily act on these things, they think these things. Like your parents may not have ever found uh, drawings of sexy girls in a notebook and drug you to a store to like tell the girl that, you know, she was wrong for somehow getting into your brain. But I knew kids who had parents like that. I did. I absolutely did. And I understood what, as a parent, I know what goes into those thoughts, right? You want to protect your kids and you naturally don't want to blame your kids. You just find any inherent reason to believe them. So things like when she discovers May's little secret area beneath her bed and, and realizes, oh my gosh, there's like a B plus test here or so, there's a C or something there. Like you didn't get straight A's and you've kind of hidden this whole aspect of your life away from me. As a parent, you are immediately nervous, you're concerned, and it all comes from a place of wanting to protect your kid. And it's misplaced in a lot of ways and you have to learn just like your kids go through adolescence you're going through that same kind of period but it's from a different perspective as the parent and so i think we get to see that in the movie play out so well and there's a great point that's made here between the friends too they're talking about rebelling and going to the concert and at one point they bring up the word deserve and i remember writing it down and putting it all caps so i'd remember when they fake the sleepover, they said, we deserve this. And you get to this certain age and you do feel like that. You're like, listen, I've done everything right up until now in my little 13 year old brain. I have obeyed the rules. I have gotten the good grades. I have come home and I have swept and cleaned the temple. I've done everything my parents want me to do. And so, you know, it's, it's time for one for me. It's been a hundred for them. There should be one for me. And when you convince yourself of that, Patrick, that's where rebellion comes from. You, you have to, you have to kind of, it's all a mental thing. You go through this mental and emotional period where you begin to believe almost selfishly. And it's not from a place of, I don't want to say selfish in a, in a way that is, you know, angry or mean or hateful. It's, this is just realistic human psychology and the way that we progress. It doesn't mean you don't love your parents or trust your parents, but you go through this progression and that's what adolescence is. And that's why it's so cool to see it all depicted in this way. And the fact that she's a bread panda, I mean, it almost doesn't even play into this movie for me. I honestly would enjoy this story probably close to as much if that never happened i think that the metaphor works and it makes it more fun and kind of cute for younger younger audiences but just understanding i know as an adult like that she's going through these emotional swings and how that can dictate your mood and i don't need the panda to show me that so it's a fun representation of it but i get it and i think that it's 
really cool just to see all of these things play out. Like the Tab Brotherhood is a great reference. I hate that you bring it up. Let's not ever talk about it again and definitely not say what it means. But the group of friends, you've got a different type of personalities here. I like how there's the boy who kind of bullies them in school. I don't, wait, that sounded wrong. I don't like that there's a boy that bullies them, but I think that that's very realistic. And it's very interesting to see like how you come around and you find out, oh my gosh, he's into some of the same things we are. And they find this commonality amongst themselves. And oftentimes in your early teens and in your middle school years and such, this is how friendships get formed is you may have this preconceived notion that you're supposed to not like this person. And you have this kind of like animosity between you growing up, but then you find out that you have something in common. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, we, we have this thing and we could be friends. And you see that play out. And then you also see the negative side of it in this film. One of the things that I thought was a really impactful scene as well was when the mom comes up and she's like, she catches them all at the concert and she's like, my my daughter would never do this. And they're like, it was your daughter's idea. She's like, tell them. They're like, tell her, May. And May's like, she can't do it because she would disappoint her parent, right? And so she essentially chooses her mom at that moment over her friends and over being honest and defending what she did for them, which puts the blame on them. And my goodness, I think, that's something that so many kids have gone through at different point in their lives. I think we can all think back to a time where we've been probably on both sides of that, where maybe we sold our friends out and maybe where we were the one that was sold out to an extent. It's all a learning process. It's all a growing process. And it's beautifully shown in this because it all comes back in the end to the fact that that's what it's all about, right? Is going through it, going through it together, trusting in each other, allowing for things that aren't going to go the way that you necessarily want them to go on both sides, but always remembering that you love each other and you want the best for each other in the end. And it generally will turn out. Okay. There's a natural understanding that we have as people that we, that we're explorers, not just in the scientific realm, but as we grow up, we're always testing the waters, pushing boundaries is another way to, to say it. You know, I have a, a nine-year-old son who is still learning how to push boundaries. He's learning how to ask one parent, and then when that parent says no, ask another parent to see if he gets a different answer. That's what I, I when I look at adolescence, and particularly the preteen and teen years, growing up, I remember thinking, I know more than my parents because they haven't experienced what I've experienced, which is an absolute lie because they have just in a different context in a different time period. What I was actually saying is I'm exploring, but my exploring is amping up to like 11 or 12 because I'm filling myself up or my body's being filled up with testosterone and my body's changing and I'm wanting more things that I didn't want two months ago or two years ago. And so it's an, it's still exploration. It's just an exploration into the unknown and the people that we want to connect with are ones that are on this journey with us as opposed to the ones that have either already been on it and we think they don't understand us or who we feel like are in a place where they wouldn't get where we are now. That's normal. That's absolutely normal. And I think that when you get criticism 
that, well, not every family grows up that way. I mean, my kids, they loved me. Or, you know, when I was growing up, I absolutely loved my parents. No, there's no doubt that you did. And the fact is, that's probably true. But when movies come out and stories are told where a lot of people say the same thing, that's usually an indication of things. And so when I and you, Aaron, can connect to a story that is headlined by a 13-year-old girl, and we can say, I get what she's dealing with. I get what she's going through. I get the fact that she's leaning into her friends. Hmm. We're two people who are living on opposite sides of the country, probably doing different things in our day-to-day, and yet we had similar experiences. Hmm. I wonder, do you think more people actually experience that? Yes, they do. Does it mean that everybody does? Absolutely not. As we alluded to in our previous topic, that not everybody's going to think that this movie is for them, and that's okay. The fact is, we're going to be connected to something, and I think that this movie enhances that connection to that particular thing. It also enhances my connection to it in the way that it depicts this idea of embracing the weird. So, Maymay ultimately wants to keep her panda. I don't know if I completely got the reason why. I think it's because she mentioned it's a part of her, it's an extension of who she is, but I think more than anything is it's her way of saying, look, this is how I can be different. It's the way in which I can be comfortable doing things that this other part of me wouldn't necessarily be able to do. You could probably chalk it up to being like, this is who I am after I've had a few beers, or this is who I am when I am out with my friends as opposed to out with my my parents. Are they in conflict? No, they're not. They're just different. And so, you know, there's a there's a lot of appeal to say, look, there are multiple sides to a person. And I don't know if the movie hint said this or didn't, but I got that from it, that if you limit a person to their academic stature, to their cultural connection, to where they live, to how they grew up, you're absolutely limiting that person completely because they don't have any room to grow or grow on you or be something in your mind that you think they could be. And I think that the movie does a really great job at sort of releasing that in the form of a panda. That's why I like the metaphor is because I think it, while I agree that part of the story would work without it, I think this part of the story, the panda makes it a lot better and a lot more um, involved. Well, I agree. I agree. I'm not saying I think that it should be gone by any stretch of imagination. I was more of a compliment in saying that I think the story works without it. That's not saying it should be without it. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. This is one of the things that I would say I was – I love your description of it because I was left a little unsatisfied with the whole I want to keep my panda thing. There is a scene where her dad is talking to her about the video that she made of her making her friends laugh as the panda. And I love this moment. It's one of the few dad moments we get in the movie. And he says, people have all kinds of sides to them and some are messy. The point is to push the bad. The point isn't to push the bad stuff away. It's to make room for it and live with it. And and I think ultimately that's where she's coming from because she says at the end of the movie in the narration, sometimes I miss how things were. Nothing stays the same forever. We've all got an inner beast. We've all got a messy, loud part of ourselves hidden away. And I think that. There's a line here that is not necessarily, there's a balance. And I don't know that just keeping our panda is 
the perfectly right metaphor. And I think that you probably couldn't get much deeper than that because it's a kid's movie. So I understand why we kept it that simple. But I also think that there is something to be said about, yes, you're going to go through this processing of emotions in a way that you are not ready for because you're a kid. And it, yes, you need to rely on your parents and you need to be able to handle certain situations in ways that they can assist with. And that it's, there are ways to manage your emotions and your reactions to things in your life that are in a positive way would be considered getting rid of the panda, if that makes sense. Like you don't always have to live with things and you shouldn't. And it's not always okay to just be different depending on what that different is, Patrick. If you have outbursts at other people because you're angry and you burst into absolutely, you know, vulgar personal attacks or violent, you know, physical things, like those are things that you can't just say, oh, those are messy parts of myself and it's just who I am. No, those are something that needs to change too. You know what I mean? You need to get rid of that part of the panda essentially. And so I think that there is some nuance here that the worldly view of this is you're a hundred percent fine with just who you are and you never have to change. You never have to do anything different than what you want to do in the moment right now, right here, yada, yada, yada. That's the message of this movie because that's society's worldview. And I don't quite align with that. I do to some extent. And I think that there is some truth in appreciation to be had in being who you are in ways, but I think that it can be taken a little too far as well. So that's kind of how I read it. So it sounds like we were kind of taking it the same way, but I definitely was not a hundred percent on board with the depiction of just being a panda and never changing because you didn't want to. So you shouldn't have to and take that. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So I'm going to take that and make a comparison to the Babadook. So if you haven't heard wow. the Babadook, <laughs> okay. yeah, I know this is I'm going dark. I'm going dark. All right. So if you have not seen the Babadook, I'm just going to give you a quick spoiler warning. I'm going to spoil the ending. Okay. In three, two, one. <laughs> At the end, ultimately our main character is choosing instead of killing this ghost, keeping it in the basement. And Metaphorically, we know that this ghost, the Babadook, is a metaphor for her grief. When I, when I see that, I think of something similar with Turning Red, where it's not a direct comparison, but you see Maymay looking at what the panda gives her, the ability to be a little bit more, not out of control, but understanding that Emotion is good, and being able to control your emotions is even better. The absence of that emotion is not healthy at all. And we see that depicted early on where she's trying not to let the panda come out. She's just speaking very monotone and trying not to get things out of control. Later on, her parents, in an attempt to prove that she can or can't control the panda, they give her a series of tests, one being showing her these cute kittens. By the end of the movie, what we see is someone who sees the value of the panda and what it represents, the ability to 
be more comfortable around her friends, the fact that her friends have embraced that. I don't quite agree with that because I think that leans more into what you're talking about. And I don't necessarily think that just accept me for who I am. Mm, I don't quite agree with that because the fact is who you are can be very self-destructive. So just accept me for being an alcoholic. Just accept me for being a sex addict. Just accept me for, no, I can't. Because if I accept you for that, I still have to put limitations because if you are a, a sex addict, I'm not going to have you around my children, especially if that addiction is connected to child pornography. If you're an alcoholic, I'm definitely not going to get in a car with you or go to a bar with you because of the danger that you pose to me and other people around you. Does that mean I don't love you? Absolutely not. But there are limitations that you have to put on those relationships. What I got from the end of this, Aaron, was the fact that Mei Mei has been able to control, which means she doesn't completely blow up as the panda. Like she brings out her tail and maybe her ears. And as she leaves, you can tell that she's not fully engaged in that, but she knows how to control. She knows how to control that panda, which means in a metaphorical sense, she can control her emotions. I think that's what I pulled from it. Now, that may not be what the movie is trying to tell you. It may be like, be yourself and it's okay, which I don't, I'm not on board with <laughs> because being yourself can lead to so many disastrous things. But being able to recognize your limitations, the fact that I remember uh, from, there was an episode of Ted Lasso where uh, Rebecca says, every disadvantage has its advantage. So looking at the world in a way that says, hey, is this a bad thing? Well, on the surface it is. How can I turn this and actually make it advantageous not only for me, but for the people around me. That's what I think we got to at the end of the movie, where she was willing to not only embrace, but also be able to control and see it as a benefit, not as a curse. That's good. No, that's I can't disagree with that. I think that you're probably spot on. One of the other things I wanted to um, call our attention to were some of the highlights of the movie before we finish up our conversation I think we both agree that uh, that Four Town is pretty fantastic. I don't think we ever got the answer to the question, if they're called Four Town, why are there five of them? <laughs> if, if that was the case. I thought that the depiction of this boy band was so much fun. Like, I want 4chan to exist. I want to buy their album because... 4chan. I knew you would somebody was going to say it at some 4chan? point. Ah, 4chan. Yeah. Five Town. Five, five Town. Yeah, four. Ugh. <laughs> that's not exactly, that's not at all what they are. <laughs> we don't need more four chains in our life. <laughs> what we do need is four town. Yes. However many people are in that band, we need more of that. I thought that the depiction was pretty fantastic. I also thought, as you mentioned before, the set pieces were, were pretty amazing. Um, you all know that I love any movie that takes place in high school or in school at this point. So this this was going to be a three at the very least for me because it takes place in high school and some of the antics that take place with the the way in which they try to earn money to get to the concert taking photos and having fun i love how that comes back at the end where maymay's dad's looking at this video and he shows it to her and she's like i'll delete it i'll delete it that conversation with her was so so precious i absolutely love that conversation with her because we don't see that. We see him as sort of a, a goof <laughs> for most of the movie. And I'm glad we got to see this other side of him where he was the reason that her mom <laughs> became the the panda that she she was. 
that she was fighting because she loved her, you know, soon to be husband at that point. And so I thought all of that was just, uh, just really great. Yeah, no, there's actually a line in the movie, I'm pretty sure where the mom calls out, like, why are there only or why are there five people in this band, that there's a four instead of five. And I think that that's part of what is intentional about it, right? That even just doing it for that one line to kind of highlight that this is the thing that the parent focuses in on. It's not anything about the lyrics of the song or whatever. Like it's all about what the question of the logical nature of it. We're like, what is going on? I mean, in sync. Look at the way that I've never written in sync right, and they're probably my favorite boy band of all time. And I don't think I could tell you exactly how to put it on a piece of paper, like where do you put the asterisk or the apostrophe or the dash or whatever, like which letters are capitalized and which ones are not. It's ridiculous, Patrick. It's absolutely ridiculous the way that they stylized the naming of their band like at least the backstreet boys is extremely to the point but all those bands had five people if you remember so i think it's pretty consistent that it's a normal five thing and i like it as well because they do go through that period of introducing them and and you know each boy is supposed to have like this unique trait and you know you got your lead and you got your heart throb and you got the one that can sing really high or you know whatever and then we get to the point where there's also just a couple that this is natural for every boy band. You're just like, Oh, and then there's like, Oh, and the other two. <laughs> and it just cracked me up. So that's much. so true. That's so it's true. So true. There's definitely, yeah. you can name like two or three of each band, even if you're just a kind of an average fan, but it takes like a hardcore fan to name all of them because there's always a couple in the background that you're just like, I don't remember who those people were, but they were in the band. And so, yeah, I, I just absolutely love everything about this band. I wish they were real. I I do. I would buy an entire album. The songs were phenomenal. And I think that it's really a strength of the movie. If you had tried to frame this thing kind of even tangentially around this boy band as the you know thing that they're trying to go do to become women to this concert, it wouldn't have worked if your boy band sucked. It just wouldn't have. Like the boy band had to be done correctly. They had to look right. They had to be shown in a way that felt very natural to our experiences. And the music has to be good. And it has to be catchy to sell us. And it and they did. And so I love that about it. Because I mean, to me, that's just a Pixar thing. It's, it's a quality across the board. Like, even though I don't prefer this animation style personally, I didn't love it it's crisp and it's perfect. There's no, I mean, it's really well drawn and there's no element that Pixar doesn't put this quality touch into. They demand it. They expect it. All their creators do. And if you didn't know, I'll just throw this out there. It's also really cool. This is the first time that Pixar has ever had a fully female production team. So I believe it was like producers, director, writer, like all as main aspects of the film were female led and you know, it shows, I think that's awesome. And I don't think every movie needs to be like that by far. But I think that when you're going to tell a story that is trying to depict a specific experience that helps make it a strength because those are the people that had that experiences. Right. And so it just shines through to me in a big way. 
Yeah, me too. I, I think for, for me, the, the biggest thing that stood out was the use of singing and not just from, from four town, but the fact that it's part of the ritual that they go through to get rid of their pandas. And I love the fact that each panda stays with them, by the way, in a locket or a set of earrings or a bracelet or things like that. So the pandas aren't gone. They're just contained. But I also enjoyed the fact that near the end of the movie, when they build that giant circle around her mom as the panda, you get that mashup of them singing and then Four Town singing their thing. I thought that was pretty fantastic. So musically, it's it was a surprise. That's where I smiled the most was getting these musical arrangements that were equally as powerful as the set pieces and the dialogue and the characters. So yay, I like that. We need we need more of that in our lives is fun mashups because we don't get those enough. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, that will do it for us this week on Feeling Film. We hope you guys have enjoyed listening. Uh, stay tuned as next week we are going to stay on the couch and we will be visiting the Netflix original movie, The Adam Project, starring Ryan Reynolds. And uh, it's also got Mark Ruffalo and Jennifer Garner, the first time I think they've been together since 13 going on 30. I know I'm excited because I love both of those guys. Ryan Reynolds always makes me smile, so... I don't think I'm going to have a bad time with this one. Let's hope not. <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone. Aaron, thanks for a great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group, a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.